Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. Evelyn Wallace here with my standard disclaimer that this podcast is meant to be listened to the way a book is meant to be read, one chapter at a time, starting at the beginning. It's almost like, gasp, this podcast is a book. It's like it's a free audiobook. Egad, lucky you. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get cracking. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 15 Things Fall Apart. A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and the portals of discovery. James Joyce from Ulysses, which I fully admit I have never read in its entirety. Sorry, uh, Professor Whedon. When the second leg of my flight finally touched down in New Hampshire, time moved strangely. It felt like I was moving in hyperspeed, spaceship style, and like I was moving in slow motion, underwater style. Warping time, that's how we do. As I made my way through the one-way doors for passenger exit, I saw Little Jack standing, short as ever, with a small bouquet of flowers. He literally jumped up and down when he saw me coming. I could have taken it as flattery, and I made a valiant effort to do so, but seeing him lift up in the air like that felt a little uncomfortable. He seemed so childlike, both in size and behavior. I didn't have much time to think about it, though, because in a few short steps, we were holding each other and smooching passionately. I'd forgotten how different it felt to kiss a man with my neck bent downward, but I held on tight to Chloe's advice and smooched away. We made our way back to his car, where Little Jack had a salad waiting for me as I'd asked. I thanked him and ate hungrily, only a little disappointed that we weren't eating together. It was late, and I understood that he'd had dinner at a more reasonable hour, but still. Ever since my relationship with food had grown up, I found that I much preferred eating with others than eating alone. It would have been nice if he waited for me, I thought sulkily. In the beginning of the two-hour drive, there was general chatter and excitement, but when I'd finished my salad, I kept trying to flirt, or just talk even, and he was simply not engaging. I felt like a passenger on a bus who was bugging the bus driver. At one point, I asked if anything was wrong, and Little Jack said he was tired. It was late. He was right. It was late. I strove to respond with a generosity of spirit, honoring his perspective and giving him the benefit of the doubt. But it wasn't a beacon of hope that we'd been apart for six weeks and run out of things to say in 60 minutes. Trouble in paradise. I can't remember if we had sex that first night or not. We probably did. It wasn't anything to write home about, and that's okay. Not every single meal of your life is worth writing home about, even though every single one should be worth eating. Usually I'd tell you not to should on yourself, but this one's true. If it's not worth eating, don't eat it. I do remember that the next morning, when Little Jack got up and went outside to smoke his first-thing-in-the-morning cigarette, I was excited to hear my phone ping. It was Jingle Bells, my new airplane friend, and I knew it was a bad sign that I felt so excited to hear from him. I couldn't very well call him Big Jack, now could I? And when I found out his initials were JB, well, Jingle Bells just named himself. His morning text consisted of a close-up photo of a gorgeous autumn leaf, where the negative spaces somewhat resembled a jack-o'-lantern. The caption read, Believe me, you're amazing. For historical record, that pic is still the wallpaper on my phone. But wait a second. Was I doing something wrong by texting Jingle Bells? 
Was I being a whorish hussy like all the haters would say? Was I mm, cheating? Now, as you might imagine, I have some opinions about the concept of cheating. For starters, cheating is a thing you do that's against the rules of the game. But I'd come to believe that the monogamy game was one of impossible rules, at least for me, and for most people who were willing to admit it, and I had explicitly made zero monogamous promises to Little Jack. Monogamy felt to me like swearing to either 1. never eat again, or 2. only eat the same thing every day for the rest of your life. In the first place, never eating again is an impossible promise, leaving you to either sneak food in secret or just slowly starve to death. Then if you get caught for sneaking food, you have to fall on your own sword because you're the piece of shit, whorish hussy who did the thing you said you wouldn't do. In the second place, do you know what happens when you only eat the same thing every day for the rest of your life? I'll tell you what, you get bored of it. You might even start to hate it, even if it used to be your favorite thing. At the very least, you start to crave other flavors and textures, but then you're the piece of shit, whorish hussy, who was tired of prime rib and wanted a slice of pizza for once. Talk about an unwinnable hand. Then comes the argument, usually, about love. Well, how can you know a person really loves you if they're off sleeping with someone else? We've been taught to say to each other. This argument I find to be hilariously limp. Do I stop loving my younger son when I take my older son out to fly kites, just the two of us? Do I stop loving Whitey when I grab a coffee with Kate? I mean, of course not. Obviously. Love is the ultimate, renewable resource. I'm not telling you how to live your life, dear one. I hope I've been abundantly clear about this. I'm just highlighting for you that we're swimming in the soup of monogamy, usually without realizing it, and there are healthy, honest ways to live differently. Anyway, I knew that in more traditional relationships, what I was doing with Jingle Bells would be considered cheating. But I wasn't in a traditional relationship, and that was out loud and on purpose. What I wasn't exactly proud of was that I hadn't told Little Jack about Jingle Bells yet. But to be fair, I had known Jingle Bells less than 24 hours at that point, and I was figuring out what felt right to say or not say. That first morning, when I realized that Little Jack's smoking habit was going to be a problem for me, I also realized that I needed to be more conscientious in the future about scanning my lovers for intellectual compatibility. And yet... I wasn't going to walk away until I'd collected more data and let it all sit in my heart for a bit. After all, I'd only just arrived. When little Jack came back from his smoke, we planned out our day. He'd told his work people that he was taking the day off, and I was pleased about it. We decided we'd putter around his little town, see a few of the prettier sights, then head to the grocery store and pick up some necessities. One of the contributions I knew I could make, and with love in my heart, was cooking for the both of us. He was housing me. It would bring me pleasure to feed him. Giving is getting, is giving, is getting. What I remember from that morning's ambles was not where we went or what we saw. What I remember most vividly was how challenging it was to get a picture of us together where I wasn't towering over him. I felt moderately superficial for being so distracted by his height— but I also didn't want to ignore my instincts. Things were starting to feel very tipping point for me, even though, like I said, I'd only just arrived. Every time I saw a picture of us together, I felt a deep-down sense of, yuck. And being turned off by a partner is not a thing we should feel obligated to just get over. 
Sure, over time, we will see our partners in their not-so-sexy moments, and that's one thing. But a visceral rejection of a person who's supposed to be your most intimate partner? That's a warning sign, baby. And hats off to ladies who aren't bothered by dating shorter men. You do you, ladies. Because wouldn't the world be a tedious old place if we all had identical preferences? I'd also like to point out that Little Jack wasn't in any way wrong or bad to be who he was. He didn't ask to be born short. And this is what I told myself, somewhat abashedly, when I found his height to be a turnoff. But grapefruit isn't wrong to be grapefruit, and I still never want to eat it. He wasn't wrong to be him, but I wasn't wrong to be me. Golly, what a conundrum. I hoped the amount of yum between me and Jack would soon balance out the yich. Later, at the supermarket, I sought out the ingredients for a few of my trademark recipes. Kale, lemon, honey, salt, and olive oil for kale salad. Ground meat, potatoes, green beans, cheese for shepherd's pie, which is the one and only recipe I learned from my mother. I improved it, for sure, but thanks, Mom, for planting the seed. Sweet potatoes, eggs, milk, spinach, bacon, and mushrooms for quiche with a sweet potato crust. I was positively salivating over the meals I would have ready for the both of us when Little Jack got home from work each night. The secret dessert I planned to serve was me. I wanted to be waiting for him not only with dinner hot and ready, but also dressed in the new lingerie I'd bought specifically with this New Hampshire trip in mind. If that didn't reconnect us, I didn't know what would. Oh, remember I don't like cheese, he said when I was deciding between sharp cheddar or pepper jack. That's right. I did remember that he didn't like cheese. It had been a running joke, in fact. You think I don't know how much easier life would be if I liked cheese? He'd asked at one point. I get it. I've tried. I just can't like something I don't like. Touché, I thought. And yet, holy moly pants. Why was everything beginning to feel like so much work? I took a breath, reminded myself that we all have our quirks, and told him the quiche would be delicious with or without cheese. So, he ventured, I'm also not a big fan of eggs. Ugh, felt like another microscopic bomb. Hmm, I thought, this might be problematic. If Olivia was my foodie soulmate, Little Jack was proving to be the opposite. How can we ever travel the world together, I wondered, if he's such a picky eater. Traveling the world was, of course, part of who I was, and it just wouldn't do to be partnered with a person who couldn't join me. I don't remember if he took issue with the kale, but, and perhaps this is bitchy on my part, I assume so. He may have tried to hide his distaste for it, but our shopping trip had been a three-strikes experience. I was beginning to wonder if I'd jumped into cohabitating a beat too early, and if I was an idiot for thinking that Little Jack and I were a good team. Nonsense, said my deepest heart. You don't know until you know, and why delay the knowing? Okay, then. I wasn't wrong to have agreed to move in with Little Jack, but it was my first day there, and I was already longing to escape. If the grocery store was a strikeout, the rest of the week was a losing streak. One of the reasons I'd been so attracted to Little Jack was his willingness to dominate me, as you may remember. As a good feminist, I'd never known I was allowed to want to be dominated. It was never a spoken rule, just an assumption. Strong women can't be held down by men. But as a lover in Los Angeles later told me, I'll hold you down, but I'll never hold you back. I'd come to terms with the fact that I was turned on by being dominated. Our bodies are the highest of high-performance vehicles, and while it's thrilling to be in the driver's seat, 
It's a novel thrill to sit shotgun. The power of submission is in choosing who you hand the keys to. I am of the mind that lots of us know this to be true, even if less of us are willing to admit it. In any case, Little Jack now seemed either unaware of my desire to be dominated or unwilling to act on it, which stood in marked contrast to that blissful afternoon when he tied me up back in LeGrand. For the record, he had bought fuzzy handcuffs, so I think he thought he was trying to take the lead. We used them approximately once, then they lay dormant. And the thing about wanting to submit is that you can't just ask for it. Asking for it is a form of taking control, and the full dose of bliss comes from not being in charge. At one point, when Little Jack and I woke up early, giving us plenty of time before he had to leave for work, I stole his towel while he was in the shower. I wanted to rile him up so that I would be, you know, punished. I wanted him to call me naughty and come give me what I deserved in the bedroom. Instead, he announced that he wasn't taking the bait and how proud of himself he was for keeping his composure. Oh, wow, I thought. He's got a randy goddess in his bed and he sees himself as the good guy for refusing her? A few days later, Little Jack got home from work to find dinner hot and ready and me in the kitchen wearing only an apron and some lacy panties. He said hello, then grabbed his cigarettes and disappeared outside. The final signal for me, as if the universe needed to send another example, was when Little Jack suggested we watch some TV after dinner, and I felt a flood of relief. This sensation wasn't gleeful anticipation for any particular entertainment content. This was my gut telling me that it was easier to be in a room with my boyfriend when I didn't have to interact with him. So, this wasn't going to work. I felt sexually, spiritually, and intellectually dissatisfied, even though I'd tried everything I knew how to do to solve the problems. The question was, how do I get out of this gracefully, both emotionally and physically? I knew it was my, and your, and anybody's right to disengage from any relationship at any time for any reason, so I didn't feel guilty, so to speak, for wanting to end things but I also wanted to be conscientious of not casting proverbial stones. I had ended my marriage without throwing cruelty upon my ex-husband. Surely I could extend the same kindness to my boyfriend of six weeks. The issue of physical disentanglement was another matter entirely, so I cast out my trusty golden threads, asking God to show me the way out. It had been a little over a year since Marshall's death, and it felt important to connect with Madeline. As such, I reached out to her to ask how she felt about me and Little Jack coming to Poughkeepsie for the weekend. You're always welcome, and your boyfriend is welcome by extension, she wrote back. Logistically, our little getaway seemed serendipitous. I figured my New York people could play a key role in my bailout strategy. As Little Jack and I prepared for the trip, I only packed enough for the weekend. This, in retrospect, seems foolish of me but I think I was still maybe harboring a hope that the relationship could be salvaged. That, or I knew it would be a terribly awkward weekend if I was compelled to explain to Little Jack why exactly I was bringing all my things. The drive to Poughkeepsie was a little over four hours long, but felt like four million billion. At one point, I said out loud, in a last-ditch effort to keep the relationship afloat, I feel like I've been trying to connect with you over and over again, but that you aren't engaging. I explained how disappointed I felt when I tried to initiate sex by stealing his towel, and how ignored I felt when he chose to smoke instead of ravishing me in the kitchen. I told him that when I tried to initiate conversations, I didn't feel like he was plugged into what I was saying. 
starting even on the drive home from the airport. Well, I guess I'm just more comfortable with silence, he said by way of defense. Sometimes it's nice to have some quiet time. It's not that I'm uncomfortable with silence, I responded. It's that I feel disconnected from you. He didn't say anything, so we sat in silence, more or less, for the rest of the drive. Like I said, it took about four million billion jillion hours to get there. As soon as we stepped inside Madeline's house, I felt like myself again. While Madeline and I sat at her dining room table talking giddily, Little Jack made himself scarce. I assumed he was outside smoking, but I didn't give him much thought. My attention was on a person I loved and who I was eager to catch up with. Madeline told me about her year. She expressed ambivalence about returning to work. On one hand, she loved, I repeat, loved her job and her students, but she was also professionally and emotionally exhausted, and who could blame her? Madeline had always been a special breed of overachiever. On one hand, she crammed more productivity into one day than I did in a week, or sometimes a month, or sometimes a year. On the other hand, she sent me a Christmas gift one year that she admitted to having bought and wrapped four years prior. I was in constant awe of her lack of self-doubt. Madeline's only setting was go, and she never seemed distracted by thoughts of regret or insecurity. She and Marshall had spent the last few years building up an existing ecological program that protected endemic wild marshland turtles right there in Poughkeepsie. It had been a lot of work when two people were running the program, especially because both of them also held down full-time jobs. Now, with Marshall gone, Madeline was doing her best to keep the whole project alive, and she was doing it remarkably well but she was also working the same demanding full-time job as an award-winning high school biology teacher. Madeline wasn't the kind of person who could sit back and let her classroom run on autopilot. Attached to her standard room, filled with desks and such, was an auxiliary room filled with living, breathing biology. There were saltwater tanks and reptile tanks and tanks being used for labs and research. It was a jungle in there. Then there's the Costa Rica trip I'll be chaperoning in the spring. Oh, Evie, it feels like too much sometimes, she proclaimed. So don't go, I said, trying to preach the good word of not doing anything you don't want to do. Oh, but I really do love it. It's hard work, but it's always worth it, she amended. Okay, well, do go, then. I recant my advice. It is so much fun, and it's so much work. God, it's so much work. But these kids, Evie, you should meet some of these kids. They're amazing. They truly amaze me. There's Madeline Padgett for you, full steam ahead and with humility. In addition to all the other stuff Madeline had going on, she was renting out two of the extra bedrooms in her house, one to the helpful, if somewhat hoarding, retired colleague who'd been there since Marshall's death, and one to an ambitious, friendly Vassar student earning his teaching degree. Madeline's energy and community seemed boundless. I told her how impressed I was with her ability to just keep swimming. She told me she had no choice. My sister-in-law's dad's funeral is coming up, but after that, I absolutely have to clean out the garage. Toward the end of the weekend, as I knew my time to head back to New Hampshire was nigh, I must have been yammering on about the travails of my life and my continued interest in jingle bells and my hope that I was treating Little Jack as fairly as possible. Madeline began to change the subject, but I kept right on going. Sorry, Evie, she said sarcastically. I forgot that everything in your life is more important than everything else. Yeah, that was not who I wanted to be. I apologized, and she laughed it off. 
From then on out, I was more careful to not be that guy. Although, to let you guys know, sometimes writing a memoir totally feels like being that guy. Me, me, me. But the idea is sharing the story is to help you, 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 or at least entertain you. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Okay, back to the story. I didn't want to keep talking about myself all the time, but I really did need Madeline's input on the Little Jack situation. She asked me, like good friends do, if I just needed to give the relationship some time. She reminded me, like good friends do, that people can change. And she supported me, like good friends do, with whatever felt right in my heart. I told her I had given it enough time. I told her that yes, he could change, but he could also not change, and that it was my right to disengage with him based on who he was then, not based on who he might be in the future. She said I'd be welcome to stay with her, as always, if it came to that, and my mental gears started turning immediately. Really? I asked. I could come back here and stay with you for the rest of the month? Your family, Evie, she said. You're welcome anytime. Okay, great. So I had a place to stay. Now I just had to figure out how to get back to New York after I had gone back to New Hampshire. You follow? Please, please, please help. Show me the way. I prayed. And, of course, the universe did. So, get this. That funeral for Madeline's sister-in-law's father was happening in New Hampshire the day after Little Jack and I would be driving back. Madeline didn't want to do the round trip all in one day, so she'd planned on heading to New Hampshire a day early. That is, the same day Little Jack and I were going to do the same drive. I could easily catch a ride back to New York with Madeline after the funeral. Hell, I could even catch a ride with her from New York to New Hampshire if I wanted to spare myself those disquieting hours in the car with Little Jack. I want to be clear that I never celebrate death or loss, but I was so fucking grateful that the stars were aligning, even by way of a funeral, to get me out of Little Jack's place. When the day came for Little Jack and I to make the voyage back to his place, I explained to him that I was going to ride with Madeline instead and meet him at his apartment. I didn't announce that I wanted to break up, but how could he have missed the signs? When the four-hour drive came to an end, which felt noticeably shorter in Madeline's company, I sensed Little Jack had an inkling about what was going to happen next. Madeline dropped me at his place, and I broke the news to him as kindly as I could. I'm feeling called to be in New York, I said, and I'm planning to go back there with Madeline tomorrow. He didn't say anything, so I continued. I honestly don't know what the rest of the month is going to look like. I just know it feels right to be there. I feel like I need to be there. I was speaking truth, just not the whole truth. It seemed unnecessarily hurtful to list all my grievances. He sat quietly for a minute. You should take all your things, he finally said, so you don't have to come back. If you wanted to stay here, you'd stay here. He was right, of course. But as soon as he spoke, all my cultural conditioning kicked in and tried to get me to say something like, No, of course I'll come back. I'll leave my things here. But cultural conditioning wasn't my guiding light. So instead, I said, Okay. I could feel his heart ache with this response. I could feel that he wanted me to argue with him, to persuade him that I really wanted to come back, that I loved him forever. But I couldn't say those things because I didn't mean them. I survived the next night and morning, but it was an uncomfortable survival. I asked if he wanted to get naked with me one last time. Why not, I figured. 
but he said he wasn't in the mood. Then little Jack got a little mean. I asked my heart to forgive him and to recognize that he was trying to minimize his hurt on the inside by throwing hurt outward onto me. He just hadn't learned yet that that particular method of pain reduction is ineffective and counterproductive. I wrote him a goodbye note, reminding him of all the reasons I could conjure that he was awesome. For example, I love the way you remember all the words of all the songs, but I was careful to avoid saying anything disingenuous. I assured him I could call a cab, but he insisted on shuttling me to the meeting place, a centrally located sandwich shop where Madeline said she could pick me up after the funeral. I was grateful for his graciousness. My exit from New Hampshire was feeling as surreal as my entrance. I was carting my luggage through an anonymous parking lot to sit and wait at a corporate cafe for my widowed auntie to whisk me away from a man I felt I never wanted to see again. In an effort to be polite, I asked Little Jack if he wanted to come in with me. I never expected him to agree, so of course he did. Fine, I thought, remembering not to ask questions I didn't want the answer to. If this is how he needs to say goodbye, I'll give it to him with love in my heart. Imagine my dismay then, after I'd bought us both drinks, at his decision to sit at the table silently and look at his phone. I was indignant, feeling both insulted and embarrassed. He joined me of his own free will, but was now acting like he was somehow imprisoned here. I understood that not everyone in the world was going to be charmed by my company, but for those who weren't, don't join me for coffee. I took a breath, asked my deepest heart to turn away from anger, and took out my book. I wasn't doing it to spite him or engage in his weird passive-aggressive game. I was doing it because that's what I would be doing if I were alone. I even said out loud, Look, Jack, I'd be happy to talk, but I'm not going to sit here and watch you play on your phone. I'm going to read a bit. If you want to have a conversation, just let me know and I'll put my book down. We sat silently for perhaps 30 minutes. Then he said he should probably get going. We stood up, hugged, and I noticed he had tears in his eyes. He said something charitable, like, I will always treasure our time together. I said I would too, because it was true because I treasure all time, sweet and sour moments alike. When little Jack drove away, I felt like a dozen soggy blankets had been lifted off my shoulders. I picked up my book, feeling spiritually free and powerful, and waited for Madeline to escort me, like a genuine angel, back to Poughkeepsie.